You know, love is a, a word that is hard to describe. You know, is it a, an emotion or an experience? Is love a, a burning thing or a battlefield? Is love a, some sort of chemical reaction occurring in our bodies? I don't know. But if you've ever experienced love, you realize it's something that seems near impossible to turn into words. It's like the combination of a fireworks show, confetti explosion, crowd roaring, seismic activity all taking place between your ears and in your heart. And the only syllable your tongue can turn is woe. And if you've ever experienced love, you realize that love sure can make us do some seemingly stupid things. And uh, the beauty about stupidity is that a simple Google search can make me feel a whole lot less stupid. Here are four of the dumbest things that people have done for love. From username the kid in green. In high school, a girl I had a wicked crush on told me I'd look good with my head shaved completely. It was already pretty short. So I went home and shaved it to where I looked like Mr. Clean. When I went to school the next day, she didn't even really notice. Kept it the rest of high school, though, and had the nickname Gandhi. Good times. Or from username Totally Alec, I swam across a river filled with crocodiles. When we were together, she admitted that this was the one thing that made her have second thoughts about going out with me. Don't try to impress crushes, just talk to them, even if swimming across a river filled with crocodiles seems easier. From username S10 Blaza Haza. I went on a date with a girl in high school. We had a few classes together and I liked her quite a bit. The date actually went quite well. So I drove her home and walked her to the door, got a hug, and went back to my car. Well, she gives me the cute little behind the shoulder blown kiss, so my dumb self decides to impress her by backing out of her driveway as fast as I could. At this time, I was driving a 1993 Chevy S10 Blazer with a rather massive trailer hitch. I rammed her neighbor's brand new Honda hitch first. My hitch hit right between the rear quarter panel and door, destroying both. The car was literally up on two wheels, impaled by my clunker SUV. I haven't talked to her since. But her neighbor is a cool guy, and we actually talk quite frequently. <laughs> or finally, from username Jordan period Cardella. Breakups are like a punch to the gut. So I decided that getting my friend to shoot me would convince my former girlfriend to take me back after seeing me in pain. So I got a friend to shoot me three times. 
Well, he refused to shoot me thrice, but he did shoot me once. Long story short, we were sentenced to two years probation (laughs) in what prosecutors called the most phenomenally stupid case they had ever seen. The kicker, my ex-girlfriend wanted nothing more to do with me. Love is a word that is hard to describe. It's something that sure can make us do seemingly stupid things, illogical things, it seems. Well, today we begin a brand new sermon series about God's seemingly illogical love in the book of Hosea. It's a love that seems altogether illogical on God's part. But as we'll see, maybe it's our own idea of love. Maybe it's our own idea of love that's actually illogical. Perhaps the parameters that we've put on our own idea of love need to be re-examined to understand God's love. Because, like, really, do I love with a love that even comes close to a half-hearted response to God's love for me? Yeah, uh, probably not. Well, if that's you too, then maybe we together need to better understand the depths of how deep the Father's love is for us. It's a love, as we'll see in Hosea, that is so deep and so forgiving that it seems illogical. It doesn't make sense. Well, that's what we're trying to make sense of during this illogical love sermon series. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read from our memory verse today, Hosea 14, 9. We do this because the Word of God is powerful, transforming. It changes societies, communities, and maybe it will change our lives today too. Hosea 14, 9. Let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. But God, I don't want to stumble and fall. Lord, I want to be wise. I want to have understanding. I want to live with discernment. And so I need to listen carefully to you. Lord, of all the distractions and all the things going on, I pray you would speak right through them. Open up my ears, my mind, my heart, my soul, everything, Lord. And speak to me today to change me. That's our prayer, God. We love you, Jesus. And we want more of you. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So I have a friend who, uh, he just loves prostitutes. It's probably inappropriate to say, but, uh, well, it's true. Seems illogical to me. It doesn't make sense, but uh, I guess love sure can make you do some seemingly stupid things. It's like everywhere he goes, a new city, a new town, boom, there he is, prostitute magnet. 
I don't know how it works, whether he goes to them or, or they come to him. But apparently he's not repulsed by them. He actually loves them. Just, uh, I guess, just thought you should know. Hosea chapter 1 verse 1 says, The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. And Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. So Hosea is a prophet, someone called by God to speak the word of God. He speaks the word of God during a tough time in Israel's history, during what's called the divided monarchy or divided kingship. So flash back to King Solomon, lots of wisdom, lots of wives, lots of bad decisions. Well, after all these bad decisions, uh, the, after his death, too, the entire united monarchy gets split in civil war. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel gets destroyed and wiped off the map by the skin-flaying, severed head-impaling, culture-erasing Assyrian Empire. And it's at this time, before and during this being destroyed and wiped off the map, that Hosea speaks the word of God. Fun times. Verse 2a says, When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute? Wait, what? Go and marry a prostitute. Sounds like an illogical move there, God. Now, I don't know what your experience with prostitution is, but uh, just a guess. I figure that being married to someone whose profession involves engaging in sex for cash, it's probably not conducive to a happy marriage. But if you're a prostitute here today, or if you were a prostitute in the past, I want you to know I have a friend who just loves prostitutes. Probably inappropriate to say, but, uh, well, it's true. Seems illogical to me. It doesn't make sense. But, you know, love sure can make us do seemingly stupid things. One time someone asked him, why? Why do you love prostitutes? And he said, uh, well, it's not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And I've come for them. His name is Jesus, and he loves prostitutes. Just thought uh, you should know. So I want to move forward today with that sensitivity that prostitutes are welcome by Jesus and welcome here today. And if that's you here today, I want you to know you are loved. But I also want you to know that God's got bigger and better plans for you. The image of prostitution, as we'll see, is not a positive one. Because sex is a gift from God to be celebrated within the context of marriage, not with people for payment. 
The image of prostitution is one of faithlessness and dishonor and shame. It all seems illogical up to this point. Go and marry a prostitute. But God's got bigger and better plans because, well, it's not over yet. Verse 2 says, When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute. She's someone you can count on to be unfaithful. Not exactly the one you want to bring home to your folks. Not exactly the perfect match on eHarmony or Christian Mingle or Farmers Only. But God tells Hosea, Go and marry a prostitute. Some of you guys are going to check that out after you're like, Farmers Only? He's got a tractor, man, woo! But God tells Hosea, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. Wait, what? This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. I had a theology professor in college who once said that the Old Testament is a long, sad story of Israel cheating on God. Ouch. But you know, it's not just the Old Testament that's a long, sad story of cheating on God. Maybe it's my web browser. Maybe it's my gossip. Maybe it's my unforgiveness. Maybe it's my apathy that's a long, sad story of cheating on God. Ouch. Verses 3 through 5 says, Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. He actually did it. I mean, you think your spouse is bad? This dude married Gomer. A prostitute. Apparently, she's the perfect match on Match.com with God's new added prostitute filter. And she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel, which means God plants. For I am about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Okay, weird. Like, what does all of this mean? Well, Gomer's name isn't symbolic. Her name's not symbolic. She simply represents Israel as a prostitute. But all her kids have symbolic names that represent a part of Israel's identity. Baby number one, Jezreel, means God plants. It's a tight name. I should know I was almost named Tyrone. <laughs> why, do you, why do you laugh? You messed up. All by itself, Jezreel, God plants, could actually mean something good about what God does. But when we reflect on the history of what happened at Jezreel and its connection with the Israelite King Jehu, well, that's another story. Let's talk about Jezreel and Jehu. 
Jezreel is a beautiful valley in a strategic location between the mountains of Galilee and Samaria. You can see it on the map here. It's, it's this beautiful valley wedged in between the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, and the Sea of Galilee. It's here that King Jehu's dynasty, like dynasty is, is your kingship, your king, and all the kings who come after you. His dynasty takes shape with the bloody overthrow of the current kingship, which was called the House of Omri. The hated girl Jezebel, the widow of King Ahab, she gets tossed from the window. King Jehu rides up on his horse, tramples her, and then she's torn apart by dogs. All that's left of her is her skull, her hands, and her feet. Then the severed heads of Ahab's 70 sons are neatly placed in two piles at the city gate. Then there's a mass execution of people who worship the Canaanite god Baal. So it's strange, even illogical to name a baby after a place with such a violent history. I mean, no one names their baby Gettysburg or Stalingrad or Hamburger Hill. Now, I was confused by this, though. Like, I, I thought Jezebel was a bad girl. I mean, you read about that in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. I thought she was a bad girl and the house of Omri. I thought they were all, you know, jacked up, you know, rotten to the core. Well, yeah, they were evil leaders who led Israel away from God. And yeah, Jehu's rebellion and taking of the throne, it seems like a good thing. Well, let's talk about Jezreel and Jehu, part two. The violence of the rebellion became excessive. I mean, really, you had to like sever all 70 of their heads. And eventually it all came back to fall on King Jehu and his dynasty. Soon Jehu's dynasty became as disloyal to God as the bad girl Jezebel and the rotten to the core house of Omri. The revolutionaries became as evil as the evil they had tossed out the window. That's why Hosea and Gomer's baby boy is named Jezreel, as a sign that King Jehu's dynasty will fall. It did. Kings kept killing each other until the northern kingdom of Israel gets destroyed and wiped off the map by the Assyrian Empire. Wow, brutal, right? Neat history lesson. But uh, what does this all mean? Clearly, God is not thrilled with the state of things. Hosea, go marry a prostitute because the people of Israel have been like her, unfaithful to me. Have a kid and name him after this beautiful valley with soil so fertile because of the blood. Jezreel, destruction is coming. It all seems illogical, but God's got bigger and better plans because, well, it's not over yet. But you know, sometimes, sometimes I think we put those words, the end, on our stories too quickly. The circumstances, they seem final. The hardship inescapable. It's the end. 
And the claustrophobia of the end is suffocating. Job loss, breakups, difficulty, failure. It may seem like this is the worst possible scenario. But take a breath. Because God's got bigger and better plans. And it's not over yet. Verse 6a. It says, soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter. That's eh, not what it says. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, simply says, name her, not your daughter. There's no your daughter. It's placed there by the translators of the NLT for a specific purpose that you will see later on. But the Hebrew just says, name her. Because, I mean, how do we even know that she's yours, Hosea? The text makes it clear that Hosea is the biological father of baby number one, Jezreel. But it's unclear for baby number two. And spoiler alert, it's unclear for baby number three. Who's your daddy? I don't know. But I mean, we can't say we're surprised. She's a prostitute after all. But the prostitute is a wife. Hosea's wife. And in ancient Israel, and I know it sounds sexist, but it's just the context. An unfaithful wife is worse than swimming across a river filled with crocodiles. It's the worst possible scenario. In ancient Israel, the amount of shame and dishonor and financial destruction that an unfaithful wife brings, it's immeasurable. In a patriarchal, that is a male-dominated society where lineage and inheritance and housing and honor are all bound up in fathering legitimate sons, that is, fathering sons of your own. An unfaithful wife with her kids fathered by who knows? It's the worst possible scenario. But it's precisely the scenario that God calls Hosea to. Verse 6 in its entirety says, Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name her Lo-Ruhamah, not loved. Nice, nice name there. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. Wait. What? What is up with that? What is up with baby number two? Baby number two receives another symbolic name, Lo-Ruhama, meaning not loved. No compassion, no mercy, no sympathy, no tenderness. Nice. Yeah, I've been looking through baby names for our own baby number two. And uh, I'm a pastor, so I got to take a look at all the biblical names, you know. But I am just blown away at the terrible plethora of biblical names. I'm like, who in the world came up with these lists? Clearly someone who has never cracked open a Bible. But, I, I, you know, no offense if you work for uh, babynamewizard.com. Or if your name happens to be Sodom or Jezebel 
or Ahab or Delilah or Lucifer. Just, just don't say that you're named after any one of those individuals. But Loruhama is pretty bad, not loved. Her name is like the image of a girl once loved. Her father once loved her with, with great compassion, but now it's gone. The support and affection has dried up. It's like he no longer cares what happens to her. It's something we see far too often. It's actually diagnosed as an emotional disorder today called fatherless daughter syndrome. It stems from issues of distrust and lack of self-esteem, and it leads to a cycle of repeated dysfunctional decisions in relationships And not only that, it can lead to eating disorders, depression, sexual issues, and addiction. It can last a woman's entire life if it goes unacknowledged or ignored. As Hosea's daughter goes through life carrying the name not loved, she's a constant reminder of a lost relationship, a reminder that God's love and compassion is gone. It's gone for Israel. It's a terrible name and an awful thought. But I will show love to the people of Judah, says verse 7, the southern kingdom. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. What does this mean? What does this mean for the northern kingdom of Israel? Can they not be saved? Is it too late for that? Sure, God still has love and compassion for the southern kingdom of Judah. But what of Israel? Where is that love and compassion? Where has it gone? I mean, that in itself seems illogical to the character of God. But that's what it seems to say. Wow, sad, right? But what does it all mean? Clearly, God's not thrilled with the state of things. Hosea, go marry a prostitute because the people of Israel have been like her, unfaithful to me. Have a kid and name him Jezreel. Destruction is coming. Gomer's pregnant again. Don't know if Hosea's the daddy, but name the baby not loved. Yeah, love Judah, but Israel, nah. It all seems illogical. But God's got bigger and better plans because, well, it's not over yet. Verses 8 through 9. After Gomer had weaned Loruhama, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. The results are in and, well, your wife is a prostitute. Hopefully, hopefully it looks like you, Hosea. And the Lord said Name him Lo-Ami, not my people. Another nice name there. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. It's like the exact opposite of what God spoke to Abraham and Moses way back earlier in the Old Testament. God had once said to Abraham and Moses, you will be my people and I will be your God. But this here now gets reversed. Baby number three also receives a symbolic name. Lo Ami, not my people. Another terrible name. It signifies the end of the covenant relationship between God and the people. God's special relationship 
and protection. It gets canceled. It's like a divorce tearing apart what God has joined. And you know what makes divorce so catastrophic is that it's not a facelift. It's not a nose job. It's an amputation. The long, sad story of Israel cheating on God has led to the operating table for Israel to become not my people. Wow. Terrible, right? But what does it all mean? Clearly, God's not thrilled with the state of things. Hosea, go marry a prostitute because the people of Israel have been like her, unfaithful to me. Have a kid and name him Jezreel. Destruction is coming. Call baby number two not loved. Love Judah still, but Israel, nah. Here comes baby number three. Yeah, name him not my people. They cheated on me and brought dishonor and shame. But where does this leave Israel? Has God forever abandoned them? Is there any possibility of reconciliation or renewal? Where's God's unconditional love? I can see it on your faces. Like, this is the exact opposite of what we've heard every Sunday up till now. Like, like we know that God is full of faithfulness and steadfast love. Well, this sounds like that steadfast love and faithfulness has just come to an end here. The future looks bleak. It's the end of the kingdom. God's love and compassion gone. End of the covenant relationship. It would be terrifying if this were the end. But it is not over yet. We move from doom to hope because with God, hope always gets the last word. In spite of the immeasurable amount of shame and dishonor and financial destruction, in spite of the society where lineage and inheritance and housing and honor are all bound up with fathering your sons, sons of your own, in spite of the unfaithful wife with her kids fathered by who knows, in spite of the worst possible scenario, God shows through the prophet Hosea, I am willing it all seems illogical, but God's got bigger and better plans because, well, it's not over yet. It's not the end. God shows through the prophet Hosea, I am willing. I am willing to stand by my wife and her children, to be husband to a faithless wife and father, regardless of who's your daddy. I am willing to endure all the shame and social stigma. I am willing to bear one of the most difficult experiences imaginable. For God has precisely this kind of illogical love for faithless Israel, a steadfast love for those who certainly don't deserve it. Up to this point, it all seems illogical. Go marry a prostitute. Name the kids Jezreel, not love, not my people. Destruction awaits. It's doom and gloom because of your actions. But God's got bigger and better plans because it's not over yet. Everything changes in verse 10. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are 
children of the living God. We see name reversal. We see the covenant reaffirmed. Though God was hurt and angered and ready to break the covenant, God is faithful and won't go back on his promises. Verse 11 says, Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together a new revived kingdom. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What looked like the end is not the end. For what a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in this land. In that day, you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Ruhama, the ones I love. I have a friend who just loves prostitutes. Probably inappropriate to say, but well, it's true. Seems illogical to me. It doesn't make sense, but you know, love sure can make you do seemingly stupid things. But it's not stupid. And it's not illogical. It's a love and a forgiveness that goes deeper than we could ever believe. And I believe it's time for the parameters that we've put on our own ideas of love to be re-examined, reshaped, and completely redefined for how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. We see it with Hosea living out the worst possible scenario to show us what seems like illogical love. God shows us that even if we are faithless, he is still faithful with bigger and better plans because it's not over. Some 70, 750 years after Hosea lived out what seemed to be the worst possible scenario. A friend of mine who just loves prostitutes, he lived out much worse. And if you were to put the words, the end, after any scene in his story, it'd look brutal and sad. And terrible. Jesus was rejected by the religious authorities. The end. Jesus was betrayed by his disciple Judas for 30 pieces of silver. The end. Jesus was denied by his close friend Peter. The end. Jesus was arrested, mocked, cursed at, spit on, the end. Jesus was abandoned by his disciples, the end. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, the end. Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross to suffer and die, the end. But no, God's got big.
bigger and better plans because it's not over yet. The end is not the end because the one who lives out the worst possible scenario bears the brunt of any and every and all of our worst possible scenarios to rise triumphantly from the grave. So if you're thinking about giving up today, if you're thinking about quitting or giving in today, no matter how brutal and sad and terrible your tale might be, no matter how immeasurable the shame and dishonor and financial destruction might be, no matter how screwed up your identity might be, no matter how long or sad your story of cheating on God or other others might be, no matter how much distrust and lack of self-esteem and dysfunctionality there might be, no matter how consuming the disorders and depression and sexual issues and addiction might be, no matter how amputated and alone and broken and faithless you might be, it's not over yet. It's not the end. Because I have a friend who just loves prostitutes. It's probably inappropriate to say, but well, it's true. It seems illogical to me. It doesn't make sense. But you know, love sure can make you do seemingly stupid things. Would you pray with me? Father, how deep is your love for us? It seems illogical. It seems like utter stupidity, the lengths that you are willing to go for us. Lord, I pray that the parameters we've put on love, the limits and reaches we've put on our ideas of love, I pray they be expanded and demolished. That we would learn to love as you love that we would learn to give as you give, that we would learn to serve as you serve. Because Lord, you're welling up a newness in our lives. That we would love this world one person at a time. And I know God, you're putting people on our heart right now. Maybe they're family members. Maybe it's someone right next to us right now. Help us to love them better. Maybe it's our neighbor. Help us to love them better. Maybe it's a coworker or a schoolmate. Help us to love them better. Maybe it's a stranger. Maybe it's someone we haven't talked to for a long time. Maybe they're churched. Maybe they're unchurched. Maybe they have no idea what to think of you, God, but I pray that we would love them better because you have loved and your love knows no bounds. I pray, Lord, if someone here today wants to experience your love for the first time, that maybe their life has just been full of cheating on you, God, that they would come to you right now. Say, Jesus, would you come into my life? I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, for my shame. You took it all. So come into my life. I I want to be free because you rose triumphantly from the grave. You defeated death. So I wanna walk with you. Holy Spirit, guide my steps. I wanna live in love. 
So Lord, help us to see how to love you and love the people around us better. For we rejoice at the ability to do that, to have a God who is all powerful, who has no rival, who is perfect in every way. Your love, Lord, it casts out fear. So we come here today, gathered today, fearless, coming to serve you and worship you. I pray that chains fall. I pray that that walls be broken down, that limits be expanded today. Help us to get outside of ourselves to give you praise and honor like you truly deserve. I don't want to half-heartedly love you, God. I want to wholeheartedly, whole soul, whole strength, whole mind to be dedicated to you, Jesus. So fill this place, Lord, as we fill it with praises, fill it with your spirit, your goodness, and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.